I've interviewed some folks that many of us would consider to be really objectionable or hateful or unkind. And I feel the same sense of responsibility towards their stories that I do to the inspiring ones, to the uplifting ones, to the, the rags to riches or the overcoming adversity story. I owe folks who would wish me harm the same level of care and fairness and love, honestly, that I owe to the folks I really admire. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm Andy Dixon, thanks for joining me. Today's a bit of a longer interview, so I'm going to cut the chit-chat beforehand and just get straight into it. Today's guest, joining me all the way from Michigan, USA, is Jeff Chu. Jeff is a New York Times best-selling author, he's a reporter and an editor, he's the co-curator and co-host of Evolving Faith, a conference, a community, and now also a podcast, and he's the teacher-in-residence at Crosspoint Church. We talk about how he became a writer, what he loves about journalism, how to honour even those people who don't hold space for you. We look at his book exploring the Christian faith and homosexuality, and his latest offering and what makes it so unique, and so much more. This is episode 41 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Jeff Chu. So joining me today is Jeff Chu. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much, Andy. It's good to be with you. Why don't we start by just introducing yourself to the listeners? Um, who are you? Where are you from? What, what <laughs> I, makes you you? I feel like who are you is such a fraught question nowadays. Right? So many of us have been working through, especially during COVID, real significant questions about who we are and what makes us who we are. So um, I guess... Because I'm Chinese, I identify through my ancestors and with my people, right? So um, I come from a Hong Kong Chinese family. I grew up in the U.S. Uh, my paternal grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My paternal grandmother was a primary school Bible teacher in Hong Kong. My maternal grandfather was a merchant, like a small shopkeeper type merchant, not like some grand giant container ship merchant, right? Um, he was born in Singapore because his parents were traders and shopkeepers before him. And my maternal grandmother, uh, she was the one who was part Portuguese, we believe. So that's the non-Chinese ancestry. And she helped my grandfather in his shop in Hong Kong. So uh, those are my origins, but my passport says I'm American. And uh, I grew up Chinese Baptist, thanks to Southern Baptist missionaries who believed that it was their calling to save the Chinese heathen from whatever heathenism means. I'm not really yeah. sure whether that was uh, ancestor worship or sweeping the graves on certain holidays or superstition or what exactly it was other than or just not, a di just a difference in culture that they didn't understand right not being southern baptist american <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, yeah 
so that's my religious heritage is 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 being raised a Chinese brand of Southern Baptist, um, which was fine until it wasn't fine, which is to say when I started having crushes on boys and figuring out that this might not be okay. Yeah. Um, and obviously different people have different ways of wrestling with what's not okay, what's outside their norm. And so, um, my way at first was to pray that I would be rescued from homosexuality, like my ancestors had been rescued from heathenism. And wow. that didn't quite work out. And I had to figure out another way. And for a time, that other way was walking away from the church. Yeah. That was in my early and mid-twenties. I, I, I guess if the church has given you a black and white option, you've got a black and white option, don't you? you and the greys are outside the walls of the church. Yeah. And at that point, that was okay for me. Um, so it wasn't until a few years out of church that I felt really guilty about going to brunch on Sunday mornings rather than being in church pews. And I know it might sound strange to some folks to say, but it was that guilt that led me back into church. Um, sometimes I guess guilt can ultimately be life-giving. I don't know. That's how it worked <laughs> out for me. Yeah. And I ended up in the pews of a lovely little Dutch Reformed church in Brooklyn, New York, that had been in some form or another worshiping together since 1654. Wow. And even though I had gone to a Christian school that was full of Reformed folks, this, I learned this was a very different brand of Reformed. It was much more progressive. It made room for questions and doubts. It wasn't obsessed with God's wrath. And these folks really liked to talk about God's love. And it felt so foreign, but also so enticing to me. Awesome. So. Yeah, that's that's where I ended up. Awesome. And of course, now you're married. I am now married. I am a husband. Um, my husband, Tristan, is from Texas. So that was another unexpected turn in my life. I think my parents had sketched out a vision for me where I would marry a nice Chinese girl and become a Baptist deacon and have 2.5 children and a nice four-bedroom, three-bathroom house in the suburbs and a couple of solidly built, maybe European cars. And instead, I'm married to a white boy from Texas and we have an <laughs> old deaf dog. And I've never lived in the suburbs as an adult. And I'm no longer Baptist and I'm definitely not a deacon. Um, yeah. So things don't always go as parents plan them to. Yeah, yeah. How's that been with with your parents, has that been really hard for them? Or um, do you have a good relationship with them? What's, what's that like? So I think it's, it's one of those things where we have landed in very different places theologically. And by some definitions, folks would consider me super close to my parents. And by some definitions, people would say, wow, you really don't talk with your parents about anything. Right. 
because Chinese families are different from white American families, or I guess, you know, European New Zealanders. Um, we have different cultural mores. So my parents might be all up in my financial business, but know absolutely nothing about what's going on with my writing. And yeah. the standards for intimacy are just different. So I'm in touch with my parents a lot. I know how they feel about things big and small. And it's like any other family. It's messy sometimes and it's complicated sometimes. And we try to love each other the best we can, even if we disagree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. One of the big things in your life has also been writing. Um, you're a journalist. Was that something that you wanted to do from very young or is that something you kind of stumbled across at some stage? So when I was very young, I had a wonderful primary school teacher who used very beautifully unconventional methods in her teaching. And she had us, for instance, when I was eight, workshop and publish, and I put quotation marks around publish, a book. So we had to come up with a story and we had to share it with our classmates and they had to give feedback and then we had to type it out on an old Macintosh computer and print out the text and use scissors and cut that out and paste it onto the paper and illustrate the book and sew the binding because she wanted us to understand what went into creating these books that we loved at the library. Yeah, cool. And Carmen, because I went to this odd little primary school where you called teachers by their first names, she planted a seed and I, I wanted to be a writer. But in Chinese families, in traditional Chinese families, that is not okay. Right. Especially an immigrant family that has come out of poverty and traveled across an ocean to establish a new life. Becoming a writer is not most parents' dream. For their children. Yeah. My parents were thinking lawyer would be fine. They knew doctor was out because I wasn't really so sciencey, but maybe investment banker because I wasn't terrible at math. <laughs> and this whole idea that I became a journalist was not well received. Uh, I remember sitting my parents down when I was home for the Christmas holidays. I had been an intern at Time Magazine. My parents let me take an internship at Time Magazine when I was in graduate school. Was that to let you kind of get it out of your system? I think it was to let me get it out of my system, maybe to convince me that that life wasn't really for me. Yeah, right. Um, I could do whatever I wanted in my free time, right? I was still in graduate school. so. And I know some folks might be like, what do you mean they let you? But even though I was 22 at the time, in many Chinese families, you make decisions collectively. What I did for work wasn't just about me. It was about the family. So they let me do this internship. And that Christmas, I went home and I was sitting with my parents. And I said, I think I want to become a writer. And my father looked at me and he said, investment banks need writers too. And then he got up and he <laughs> left the room. Uh. And I ended up staying at Time Magazine. I had another job offer at a startup. But I ended up staying at Time Magazine e even after I defied my parents' wishes and became a full-time journalist because it was a small concession to them. At least they recognized Time Magazine. 
right? Yes. At least I wasn't sitting in my basement putting out a newsletter that nobody was reading. I could convince them that this was a real job. Um, but that was my path into journalism. I fell in love with telling stories, and I really wanted to understand the world through other people's experiences and to see what was going on in the world through their eyes and to amplify their voices. And it was great fun. You've been doing journalism for a while now. Do you have any kind of memorable stories, ones that have stayed with you, um, ones that have even shaped you to some degree? So the reality is that over the years, you know, I'll go talk to uh, English literature programs or journalism schools and students always want to know who are the famous people you've interviewed. Uh, what celebrities have you talked to? And I've done my share of that kind of reporting. And those were almost always the least interesting conversations. Yes, I have interviewed Britney Spears and I've interviewed Halle Berry and I have interviewed presidents of small European countries. And every single one of the, those people, when they speak to a journalist, when they talk to a reporter, they have a script that they're going to follow they're doing their job, you're doing your job, you get together, you exchange quotes, job done. And over time, I realized the folks I love to interview the most are the ones who have never been asked for their story before. In many cases, they take a real risk in sharing with you it's not edited. It's not censored. They don't know what sounds good. They're just being themselves. And to sit at someone's kitchen table and to be invited into their lives, to be told, nobody's asked for my side of the story before. Yeah. That's incredibly humbling. I remember there was one woman I met in Rwanda. This was a, for a story for Fast Company magazine, which is where I worked after time. And we were sitting in her chicken coop, which was also her kitchen, which was outside of her house. It was an outdoor kitchen. She had survived the genocide, unlike most of her family. And she was so proud, standing there in chicken shit, showing me her chickens, because this was possibility for her family. Yeah. This was possibility embodied in chickens that her kid's life might be different from her own. Wow. Her name was Marta, and I've never forgotten her because she was so eager to tell the world, I've survived, and I'm going to do this thing. And I believe that a future that is more beautiful is possible for my kids. What an honor to be trusted with that, right? She doesn't know what I'm going to write. She doesn't know how I'm going to make her look, but she is who she is. And, and so those kinds of interactions have also always stuck with me because I don't believe that journalists or writers have a right to tell other people's stories. Other people's stories are something that we are given to steward and to care for and to honor. And that doesn't mean that we always write puff pieces that make people look good. Stewardship doesn't always mean uh, roughing, uh, softening the rough edges or polishing everything up to a sheen, right? Um, but we do have a responsibility to be fair. And we do have a responsibility 
to present a picture of our subjects that when they look at that page, when they pull up the website, they'll say, yeah, that's me. That's fair. We've talked about story a lot on the podcast uh, with photographers and with artists and things like that. And it's, it keeps coming back to that same thing. You know, this is actually a treasure. This is a gift that I've been given in hearing this person's story. And now my responsibility is to, to present that gift to the world in some way that reflects what a treasure it is. And I hear that kind of sentiment coming through from you as well. It's really hard though, right? Because not every story not every perspective feels beautiful or lovely or hospitable. I've interviewed some folks that many of us would consider to be really objectionable or hateful or unkind. And I feel the same sense of responsibility towards their stories that I do to the inspiring ones, to the uplifting ones, to the the rags to riches or the overcoming adversity story, right? I owe folks who would wish me harm the same level of care and fairness and love, honestly, that I owe to the folks I really admire. And that makes it really difficult. How do you honor a story that might not make room for you? How do you care well for the narrative of a person who does not care for you at all? I think that's a bigger challenge that we don't always talk about. Yeah. And because, I mean, that's this isn't theoretical for you, is it? You've, you've actually lived this out and you've interviewed people who are white supremacists who wouldn't uh, have space for you. When I was at Time Magazine, I did a story once about this funny, small, but maybe not as small as many of us would like, group of white Southerners who believe that the U.S. Civil War will ultimately be won in the Confederacy's favor and the South will rise again. Wow. And I think it was a surprise for them that they were having one of their Saturday meetings, all these white folks mm. whom, whom probably subscribe to what we would call white supremacy, even though they would have different words for it. And this short Chinese guy wanders in to their meeting and it's just like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> Tell me your stories. <laughs> And one of the beautiful things at Time Magazine that I learned was how to maintain my composure, how to be a fair and non-anxious presence in the face of people who really wouldn't want me there. Yeah. Because it wasn't about me. They didn't know anything about me. So I had to be able to differentiate between me and reporter Jeff who is there to do a job, who is there to portray the scene accurately, right? And that's turned out to be a real gift as time has gone on, as we've seen in society at large, but especially on social media, how people have no ability to differentiate, yeah. how they can't separate their tweets from themselves, how they feel personally aggrieved if you disagree with the slightest thing. So I'm really thankful for that training early on uh, because I think it equipped me 
to survive with some of what we're experiencing now. Yeah. As you were saying it, I was thinking, man, that's that's a great life school we we should all learn. How to interact with people who think differently than you is is not something that a lot of people know how to do. I think a crucial part of it that I've thought a, a lot about over the last couple of years is so many of us don't realize how much power we are handing over to others to define who we are, right? Because when we take the bait, when we accept the slur or get so worked up about a slight or an insult, that's actually giving the person who issued that slight or insult a tremendous amount of power over us and our feelings and the way we show up in the world. So what would it look like, especially for those of us who claim to be Christians, right? What would it look like to give the story of Jesus, the story of our belovedness, more power over our mood, over our words, over the story that we embody in the world than the words or insults of someone on Twitter? I mean, what if we actually acted like people who are beloved? I'm still working on it, right? Yeah. Like I, I won't claim that I'm an expert in this, but it is something I've been thinking about. Like, yeah. Isn't that kind of the ultimate security blanket to know that you're fully embraced by God's love at all times and nothing can change that truth? Yeah, that's beautiful. So you, you've done a lot of writing other people's stories. You also tapped into your own and, and wrote a book called Does Jesus Really Love Me? Uh, do you want to just share a little bit about where did that come from and kind of what's the heart of that book? So I started working on this book in 2010, and that was just at the tail end, I would say, of my time in a sort of spiritual wilderness where I didn't want to be in church, where I felt like there was no place in the church for me. But I couldn't reconcile my own personal theology with my sexuality. I was still kind of in this space of confusion about how it worked. And I honestly, having grown up Baptist, I really was afraid of going to hell. That was still a lingering thought that felt very heavy to me because for most Baptists, hell is a particularly real and fiery concept. The only thing I knew how to do at that point was to approach the subject, which I found tremendously difficult on a personal level, through other people's stories. So I spent a year traveling across the U.S., across the theological spectrum, trying to understand how all these folks consider themselves Christians, but they landed in very different places when it came to their understanding of sexuality. You had Episcopal priests and in one bishop, in the case of Mary Glasspool, whom I interviewed, um, an out lesbian, first bishop who was an out lesbian in the Episcopal Church in the United States. But then you had Westboro Baptist Church, which has become famous for holding up God hates fags signs. Mary Glasspool and the members of Westboro Baptist Church both would claim to be Christian. They would both claim that their theology 
is Christian theology. So how did they end up in such vastly different places when it comes to homosexuality? So that was my challenge. And I ended up doing more than 300 interviews and talking to prominent people, people in the pews, people who had survived conversion therapy, people who were in predominantly gay churches, people who, who were still closeted. And I knit together a picture of what the American church was at that time, because honestly, the book came out in 2013, and society has changed a lot since then. But it was a snapshot then of where the American church was on sexuality, which is to say a messy, difficult, divided place that was longing for some kind of healing and reconciliation and clarity, even if healing and reconciliation and clarity were all defined in different ways by different people. Again, that's the temptation for a lot of people would be to go, hey, let's just tell this one side of the story. But what you did was to go, actually, let's tell this whole sweep of the spectrum of the story and help navigate through that. There were folks who refused to be interviewed because I included the whole spectrum. And I understand that. I, the, folks said to me, I can't be in the same pages as Westboro Baptist Church. I refuse. I won't do it. And I get that. Right? I don't own their story. They don't have to talk to me. At the same time, as someone who, let's be clear, is in a very different theological place than Westboro Baptist Church, hmm. I don't really think it does us any good to caricature them, which most writers who have written about them have done, or to pretend that they're not there. I think the best way to oppose harmful theologies is to understand what underlies those theologies, is to have a more intimate knowledge of how they work and how they're constructed, not to pretend that they're shallow or to claim that they're nothing. Because these theologies have a real effect in real people's lives. And dismantling them is not just a function of saying, I disagree, or you're hateful, or you're wrong. That's not enough. Yeah, and, and by entering in dialogue with them, you're actually recognizing their humanity. They are humans. Even if they don't always recognize other people's. And I think that's, again, like with the, with the heart of this podcast in mind, that's actually a way that we can do good in the world is just simply to recognize people's humanity, regardless of their theology, regardless of their political positions. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But to actually treat them as human is really important. So it's, I just think it's really admirable the way you've, you've gone about that. Thanks. I'm sure you've, you've received both positive and negative feedback around the book. When, when you think back to a lot of the, the stuff that's come in, what are the sort of memorable things that have reminded you that this was worth writing? Usually it'll be a note from a queer kid who says, I live in a small town. I go to a conservative church. Thank you for reminding me that there are folks out there who have made it. Thank you for letting me puzzle through all this by myself. And that was something I encountered when I came out. Everybody had an opinion about what I should believe. Nobody 
said, well, what do you think? What are the questions you have? How can I help you sort this out? They just wanted to impose their own theologies, their own convictions. And I wasn't ready for that. So it's a real gift when someone who is at that stage of their experience says, thank you for coming alongside me. Thank you for letting me have these stories so I can puzzle through some of this on my own because I'm not in X or Y place yet. Um, that's really meaningful. Or I've also gotten notes from some parents. A lot of conservative parents don't feel they have room to grieve what they have to let go of when their kid comes out. But that grief is real. That doesn't mean that the grief is bigger. We don't have to rank the grief. We don't have to yeah. compare the parent's grief with the kid's grief, right? They're both real. That parent has to let go of what images, false images, they might have concocted for that kid's life. Yeah. Right? And you're going to have to mourn that. And that's okay. Maybe you shouldn't have had it to begin with, and we can have that conversation. But the fact is, the image was there, and now you have to let go of it. And you have to say, I'm sad. I'm sad because my dream isn't going to come true, but I'm also sad because my kid's life might be harder in this particular way than I thought it was going to be. And so for those parents to write to me and say, you made room for me to process that, and I was able to love my kid better, because of the stories you shared. That, that was incredibly gratifying to receive some of those notes. Because I think that's what stories do. They help us puzzle through some really complicated things and through others' experiences, maybe we will be able to avoid some of the same mistakes. Maybe we'll be able to treat each other a little more gently. Maybe we'll be somewhat more humane. That's my hope anyway. Yeah. Thinking to what you were saying about your own experience and, and people trying to impose stuff on um, on you rather than asking, you know, what you were going through. I think that's just a really good reminder for me and, and all our listeners that actually this isn't this isn't even a conversation about where you theologically land. You know, that this is this is about regardless of your theology, how do you actually get alongside people and walk with them rather than trying to get them to believe rightly um, you know, because actually, you know, Je Jesus wasn't as concerned with people believing rightly as he was with getting alongside people and walking with them. And so, yeah, that that's a really great reminder that in uh, particularly in these kind of heated, maybe uh, theological discussions uh, or positions that actually there's still a way to walk together, to work things out together that isn't about imposing, that isn't about heaping guilt or shame on people, but is about letting people explore and, and finding their faith, their experience of Jesus in that moment themselves. I get that it's scary, right? Because we want certainty. Certainty would would be more comforting in some ways. I crave being sure that I'm right about things. And I also know that the kinds of things we've been talking about today, the big questions that keep me up at night, I'm never going to have the certainty that I crave 
because we can't know the answers to some of those big questions. So do I believe in a God who is gracious enough to allow every single one of us to be wrong about some things, whether it's biblical interpretation or the way the world works? I hope so. I hope that God isn't sitting up there with some cosmic tally sheet. And if you get 61%, that's a pass. But if you get 60.9%, then you're consigned to punishment, right? That's not the kind of God I want to believe in. So I'm really hoping not only that God has grace for our mistakes, but that we'll have grace for our mistakes as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I mean, that leads in well to to talking about another big part of your life, which is the Evolving Faith Conference um, and the Evolving Faith Community. And actually, this is where I first encountered you. I was kind of late, late to the party in some ways. Uh, a friend uh, recommended some Sarah Bessie stuff to me. Uh, because it was similar to what I was talking through at the time. And um, and it was great, because once I found Sarah, I found this kind of whole collection of you, um, of, of wonderful people who are helping people uh, non-judgmentally to process faith, and to go, hey, actually, there's a lot of us who are asking questions, and that's okay. You know, there's there's a lot of us who aren't sure that the things that we were told adamantly that we had to believe are actually the things that we have to believe and um and so i mean that's involved a conference that's involved a podcast um, and a bunch of other kind of speaking things around that do you want to tell us a bit about what's your involvement in the evolving faith conference and um and how did you end up involved with that so Sarah and Rachel Held Evans and their operations partner Jim Chafee actually started evolving faith in 2018 And they didn't really have any grand plans. Both Sarah and Rachel had been through a lot of change and shifts in their faith, asking big questions about their evangelical convictions, in Rachel's case, and Pentecostal upbringing in Sarah's. And they had this idea that maybe we could just gather some folks to talk for a couple of days with some of the people we really enjoy. Um, professors and writers and musicians and artists. And I think Rachel said to Sarah at one point, do you think we could get a couple hundred people to sign up for this? (laughs) And they ended up getting 1,500 people to buy tickets within two weeks, which shocked them and maybe frightened them a little bit because (laughs) they had no idea, right? They had no idea that so many people were craving the same kinds of conversations. So I came on board probably, I guess it was four or five months after the first gathering. I think partly because I had shared a lot of opinions with them after speaking at that first conference and seeing some of the things that had gone maybe not ideally right. Uh, I shared a lot of opinions about what I observed and that was my mistake. Because they were like, oh, you have a lot of opinions. Well, then maybe you should do something about that. (laughs) But also, I think Rachel and Sarah felt that it was important for a group of people who claimed to be about honoring the diversity of God's people and for a gathering that claimed to emphasize justice and equity you couldn't just have two straight white American women. Oh, wait, sorry, Sarah's Canadian. Okay, 
two straight white <laughs> North American women. My apologies to the, the Canadian people for that oversight. Um, in charge of the whole thing. Yeah. And so I think there were layers to them inviting me to join them in shaping the gathering. And it's been wonderful and it's been terrible because Rachel died three months after I joined the team. And we had to create and curate the second gathering in the midst of our grief. Yeah, wow. And then the next gathering, 2020, happened in the midst of the pandemic. (laughs) And so we had to do it online, right? We had to change gears like everybody else trying to organize any kind of group thing in 2020. And so in October 2020, we gathered online. And we realized what an opportunity it was and what an unexpected gift it was because that evolving faith was more global, more accessible to people across time zones, across abilities. Folks who couldn't leave their homes suddenly felt, I have equal access to this space, which hadn't been the case before. And so now as we're looking forward and trying to figure out what we do from here, we know we can't go back, right? We know we can't say to people in New Zealand, it was nice to have you last year because we were all online, but sorry, we're going back to one room. It was nice to know you. And we can't say to the person who uses a wheelchair, well, it was great because we didn't have to worry about ramps. (laughs) But now we're vaccinated and so sorry. Like that, that's just not an option for us, but it is complicated. It is really complicated because we've also asked the question, what are the shortcomings of the online gathering? What do we lose in a space that is not embodied in the same way as physically gathering together? So I don't know. I don't know all the answers. One of the things I've really appreciated about what you guys have been doing is, is saying, hey, we didn't actually always get it right you know with with this heart for inclusion with this heart for diversity you know maybe it wasn't as on the ball as we thought it was initially and we're working to change that and so you even did that with the podcast by um, you know sharing a bunch of the first conference speakers but then inviting some others to increase that representation so in 2018 rachel and sarah put together a lineup that included no transgender people for instance and Disabled folks were vastly underrepresented. And so when it came time to do the podcast, Sarah and I felt strongly that we would try to remedy that. And so we had uh, an episode that was folks who are disabled. And we had an episode that was speakers who identify as transgender. We paid them like we would have paid them if they'd spoken at the conference. And that was really important. No, it's not the same, but we can't rewind the clock. We can't go back to 2018 and adjust the stage. And I will also say that we're going to keep making mistakes. And I hope there's grace for that. Yeah. You talked about how the number of people who bought tickets 
was beyond expectation for that first conference, and I imagine it's only grown since then. What is it about the evolving faith community that you feel draws people to it? I don't think it's so much anything that we are doing or saying so much as it is a failure on the part of the institutional church to create space for where people actually are in their spiritual struggle right now. We're missing something. And by we, I include myself in that because I'm a part of the church as much as anyone is. The institutional church has not shepherded its flock well. If a sheep is missing a key part of its diet, the answer is not just to keep shoveling the same food in its mouth. The shepherd wants to know, what are the vitamins it needs? Is it cold? Is it hot? Is there an infection I need to take care of? Is something off kilter? And so many of us have been in agony for one reason or another because of shame, because of abuse, because of trauma, because of poverty, because of exclusion, because we're disabled or because we're neurodivergent or because there's something that marks us out as other. And the church just keeps doing what it's doing. And the church keeps saying, okay, well, if you don't fit in, then shave off these rough edges and make yourself fit in. And I think that's what Evolving Faith has tapped into, is hunger and longing and sorrow, but also hope, because I don't think people would show up if they had given up. Yeah, yeah, cool. I don't think people would buy tickets. I don't think people would spend time reading these books. I don't think people would email us, even as it's really annoying sometimes to get these emails from total strangers asking for basically personal counseling because I can't help all of them one-on-one -on -one and I can't recommend a church for you in a small town that I've never heard of. I'm so sorry. Mm. But there's a hunger and a longing and a grief there and a desire for connection and a need for feeling just a little bit less alone. Yeah. I really love the metaphor that you guys use of a there's a table in the wilderness or a, a feast in the wilderness because it it does feel like that to a lot of people that actually I you know I'm I'm not quite sitting at the table eating with the rest of the people in this space and I've found myself out in the wilderness you know out in this sort of desert kind of place where I don't know where I belong and then you're saying well actually there's a bunch of us here let's eat together and I I just think that's beautiful the the latest thing for you is that uh, a book has just come out called Wholehearted Faith. Uh, it's a it's a unique kind of book. Uh, do you want to tell us about where that book has come from? Yeah. So before Rachel Held Evans died in May of 2019, she was working on her fifth book for adults, and this was going to be an exploration of the concept of wholeheartedness, which comes partly from Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and shame. But Rachel was going to specifically explore it in the context of the Christian faith. 
what does wholeheartedness look like in at least a Western church that so often has told us that the heart is deceitful above all things, that we need to trust our rational minds, that our feelings are to be held at a distance, but our thoughts, our apologetics, our rational frameworks are the things that can help us defend the faith. And over time, Rachel came to find that framework really unsatisfying and even problematic. And this book was meant to be her way of very gently addressing some of that, winsomely through personal stories, through candid reflection. But she never finished it because she died, right? And so her husband asked me to finish the book. So it's never going to be the book that she would have written, right? There's no way that I could reproduce what was only in her heart and mind. I had to take it in an equally, I hope, equally faithful but different direction, sticking to the outline where I could, but taking the liberty to just write where I couldn't. And it is what it is, and people will judge for themselves whether it's true to Rachel, but I hope it is, and I hope people find it helpful in the way that Rachel was helpful when she was on this earth, which is to say forging solidarity with people who feel alone and coming alongside people who feel alienated from community and whispering a word of hope to a lot of people who are feeling a sense of despair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, listeners, if you haven't heard of Rachel Held Evans or haven't read any of her things, I'd totally recommend it. I imagine for you, Jeff, that the process was, I don't know, both wonderful and heartbreaking. How was the process? I guess that's me guessing. Was that what it was like? What, what was it like? I think maybe if we had this conversation in three or five years, I'd be able to articulate more of the wonderful aspects. But right now, I think the heartbreaking is a lot more real to me. It takes me a significant amount of work to puzzle my way to the wonderful because I miss my friend. And every day working on this book, whether it was trying to put a paragraph together or figure out what Rachel's convictions were on a particular theological issue because we didn't agree on everything, to even having conversations about it is just another reminder that I don't get to talk to my friend again. And there's a part of me that is ready to not sit in the grief all the time anymore, or at least make room for the grief to change shape. So that's been really hard. And it's also been an opportunity for me to honor someone who mattered to me a lot. So like so much else in life, it's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. What are your hopes for this book? So this book, uh, like all of other the other books that Rachel wrote, she wrote every single book with one particular person in mind. She was never trying to aim for this broad, faceless audience out there that would 
vault her onto some bestseller list, right? Every single book, she had one person in mind. And this was for her freshman year university roommate, Kathleen, who has been through a lot of spiritual trauma, who grew up in an extremely fundamentalist church and household, and has struggled to hang on to her faith. Kathleen, and I'm comfortable sharing this because she's talked about it publicly since the book came out, reached a breaking point in 2016 after Trump was elected president of the United States. And um, folks might remember when he instituted a change of policy at the U.S.-Mexico border and children were separated from their families. And Kathleen heard her pastor defend this policy vehemently from the pulpit. Wow. We all have different straws, right? Last straws. And for Kathleen, this was it. She was like, how can he do this? It instigated a little bit of a crisis of faith. And Rachel was there to gather her up in her arms and to sit and to hold her while she cried. And that was the person for whom Rachel intended this book. I see it as a gentle pastoral letter to someone trying to put together the fragments of a broken faith. Someone who spent their life in church and is suddenly confronting questions that they might have had, honestly just below the surface, but had avoided. Many of us do that, right? Because it's easier to avoid the questions than to confront them, especially big questions that, for which the answers are so elusive. So I've said elsewhere, and I've written that this is not a progressive Christian manifesto. It is not a screed that condescends when it comes to folks who don't share Rachel's convictions. It is not a book that condemns. It's more of a love letter to a friend who is trying to puzzle through some really big questions. It's sitting down with someone, someone over a cup of tea and saying, I get it. Something hurts right now. I wonder if we could imagine it this way. Oh, I'm even more excited to get mine now. It's hopefully winging its way here as we speak. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for um, for being vulnerable and giving your time today. Thank you for reminding us about holding space for people, about walking alongside people, for the gift that it is to hear people's stories, even if they're ones we don't like. And thank you for holding space for people that can ask questions about their faith. So thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Sure. I hope we'll be able to have a sequel to this conversation in person someday if if New Zealand ever lets foreigners in again. We actually went on our honeymoon in New Zealand, and so it, oh, it has wow. a really special place in our hearts and great memories, and we hope we'll be back. Oh, we'd love to have you back. Thanks a lot, Andy. Hello. to come near all this
I think in this conversation I was encouraged, confronted, blessed, challenged and inspired. You know, there's so much in there, but in particular, I love the way that Jeff has learned to honour even those who actually hate who he is. For someone who has so many reasons to be bitter, Jeff is the total epitome of grace, which, in my opinion, is one of the most profoundly beautiful ways to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Jeff, here is a blessing for you. May the God of grace continually fill you with all you need to live the life of grace that you desire to hold space for even those who would do you harm. And may those who see you do this be shaped more and more into a life of grace themselves. May your willingness to be you and to put out material to help others explore who they are continue to inspire and strengthen others who are also wrestling with faith in life or who need help to support and love their kids through times of struggle or change. May the next part of the Evolving Faith story be one of adventure, And may it continue to be a glorious feast in the wilderness, reaching those all over the world who have been pushed to the margins of the church. May your grief at the loss of your dear friends slowly be outweighed by joy at all that you cherish about your friendship with Rachel. But may you be free to feel what you feel without the need to process based on anyone else's timeline. May your marriage flourish and your relationships prosper. And as you are always quick to remind everyone else, may you remember now and always that you are seen and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when Charlotte Cummings from the Mind Health podcast takes over and I become the subject of exploration. We talk about my journey with redundancy, mental health and counselling, parenting ups and downs, and where I'd like to take this podcast into the future. Until then, me inoi tato. E tō mātau matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia taumai tō rangatiratanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Haumai kia mātau ai nei E taroma mātau mō tēnei rā Muro mātou hara, me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou. Aua hoki mātou e kawea kia whakawaia, engari whakorangia mātou i te kino. Amen.